cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for the burning platform with me and Pumi Mashiko, and we will be joined this morning by Dumo Denga, who's, of course, a libertarian co-host and founder of the Man Patriot podcast, someone we've had on the show many times before. Dumo, nice to see you. How are you? How are you doing, Gareth? How are you doing, Pumi? It's great to be on again. Um, yeah, having looking forward to having a good discussion today. Yes. And can I just say how much of a pleasure it is having someone on who also has good sound? Because we often, <laughs> you know, people in the audience will say, oh, that guest, your guest sounded terrible. Like we've got to run from uh, one corner of the earth to the other corner of the earth to supply people with microphones and headphones. But it seems to me you've got a very good setup there and I appreciate it enormously. So we can talk without interruptions and without having echoes and noise and all kinds of other stuff. So thank you for that. Perfect, perfect. Good to see you again. Listen, I do want to let you know, Dumo, that I have been mm. avoiding um, reading this water, uh, this amendment to, to the water rights thing. I've been avoiding it. I've been avoiding it. And when Dory told me you were coming on, it's one of the things you wanted to talk about. I did swear a little. I just want you to know. <laughs> so first of all, I mean, the obvious question is, why have you been avoiding it? Just because you think it's very boring or you think it's pointless or you think it's stupid or what? Because I think there's a there's a lot um, that needs to to be understood about what's going on outside of the hysteria before you can properly weigh in on what's happening, because the issuing of water rights is not new, <laughs> you know, and it it comes from a particular place and space, and this is not the first amendment. Actually, this is not the first amendment that's been uh, written. And so I've been avoiding it because I'm also kind of thinking we're living in a huge, huge, huge kind of echo chamber right now where there are extremely loud voices who have a particular view and agenda. And that's all we ever hear because we we don't have a strong enough uh media anymore we we just it's the the newsroom has been too juniorized and there's not enough time or money to do a thorough deep dive into what's happening where it comes from what are the what are the implications all of that kind of stuff so if you have if you have the megaphone that's what we hear and so i've been kind of like oh i don't i don't need some digging I don't, I don't think you need any of that. I think that you, you can, on principle, based on what we already know, discuss this on a theoretical level. I think we have to some degree in, in a previous episode. I remember we had this conversation, Pumi, with you and I and, and one of our other guests. Is it ever okay to have legislation that discriminates on the, on the basis of race for whatever reason? You can justify that any way you like. Hitler would have, Stalin would have. There are people in America right now who believe in race-based policies. How do we feel about that a priori before we even look at any of the detail? And if we think that it's okay to discriminate based on race or gender or anything else, then you're in a certain category. And I don't, I just don't see a way down from that. But if you say that it's all about the detail, then we can get into that just now. <laughs> Duma wants to talk about it. So let him go first. <laughs> go ahead. Right. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I just read a piece about this, right? Um, on business tech. And what is very interesting about this is that, um, 
it looks like when it, when it comes to issuing out water rights, in order to do that, what you need is that you'll need, um, like to have certain ownership. You have to meet certain ownership criteria and so forth. Now, there's a, now on principle, as Gareth said, um, the problem with something like this, right, is that it's, it's the government is actually getting involved in something that I believe that they shouldn't be getting involved in. Now, I do think that, yeah, water is a scarce resource. I do think that um, the private market can provide for it very well without government interference. And now if you're going to try and, uh, let's say, you know, uh, create some sort of legislation that states that, well, if you need to, if you want to provide so much water, then you need so much ownership of people of a certain skin color. I think for me that's not necessary. It's a... It's it's arbitrary in my opinion. Um, if there are people that want to, you know, provide water, um, then I think that yeah, then they should just be given a license. There needs not to be any, uh, in my opinion, um, what's the right word? There needs to be there needs to be no restrictions on that, in my opinion. And then you and then they can compete for customers that way. <laughs> yeah. So this is so, so this is this is what I'm saying, right? So. First of all, we have to understand that the, the resource of water is regulated by the government. There's, so in, in order to ensure that there is water available for everyone, it's that, that we, we're not going to get away from. That's how it is all over the world. But I think what, what has been fascinating for me with this and having now done all of this reading, guys, to understand <laughs> that, that what we're talking about is we're talking about the fact that, uh, in 2004, 98% of all available water licenses had already been allocated in, in 2004, right? So, what we're talking about now is we're talking about the issuing of new licenses in respect to 2% of the available water resource. And then understanding that this particular issue of race is one of 12 criteria that they have in place, right? And this is, this is what I was saying. This is what kind of was driving me crazy and the one that everybody is looking at is this one thing in a great list of 12 right so what are, what are then, the other criteria i mean what else are they looking look at and and it's various things right so it's about storage it's about the size of your land it's about the uses it's about what you're how you're you're, you're getting the water is it a dam is it you, you know all of that stuff right is the the it's different and there are different licenses and different usages depending on how and where you get your water from is is it groundwater is it underground water is it is it a stream a river lake uh, you know in in your land is it all of those things and and none of that is in the the public discourse right now right and then over and above that to think about the fact that of this 98% uh, of licenses that have already been given out, right? We we are sitting with a three to one ratio. Three hundred and thirteen million cubic liters of available licenses have been allocated and they've been allocated to large white commercial farms. And only ninety nine million have been allocated to small newcomer black 
colored Indian, whatever, farmers, right? So now when you hear all of that in its entirety, you're kind of going, oh, okay, so when new licenses come up, what are these criteria? And race is one of 12. But Mm -hmm. all we hear about is we hear about, oh, no, the government is, you know, now only considering race to giving new licenses. But nobody's having these conversations. So the one article that you read, Dumo, that raises this ire in you is missing 99% of the information. And and, and I'm glad you mentioned the other 99% because that actually... um, that actually solidifies my point about licenses. Um, the, you, now, it's not only race. There's more, um, what is it, categories that are used to determine if someone should get a license. That's not good for any, that's not good for any management of any scarce resource. Because the problem is that now you've got this body. They can create whatever categories they want on who should get a license and what's the criteria that should be met. And as a result of that, that could actually, um, What's the right word? Um, it could actually decrease innovations in that sector or in that industry um, to make water actually, well, will make the, the water or get more water that's available. Unfortunately, when you have license restrictions, you're going to create um, cartels. And as and the people that make the decisions, they can be influenced by um, government or whoever to keep people out. That's what licenses are there for anyway. So if race is one category, fine. But if there's more categories that are used to that are used to decide um, who gets a license, that make that solidifies my point. It's even worse. So that's why I say yeah. we should not even have those have any criteria. Well, if you want to provide water, provide water. So yeah. put me with, with with all that you've read. And you've gone to the trouble of doing the research on this, which I appreciate because most of us won't. So you're going to give us a pricey, which you kind of have already. So based on what you've told us and on, on the things that you haven't even told us that you read, what is your overall feeling about this proposed legislation? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's balanced? Do you think we should take it a little more seriously and not just dismiss it out of hand? I think we need to take it more seriously and not dismiss it. You know, and the issue of water is one that I, I have... A, a very close association with, as you know, you know, with some of the projects that we've worked on, um, in, in my other work. And what we see is we see places and areas that actually have plenty of water available. There is enough water in those areas for everybody. However, the way that the licenses have been issued and who has access, people have dammed up water. So you have literally adjacent communities. One, in fact, in this particular place that I'm thinking about, three huge commercial farmers who use completely unsustainable and outdated ways of irrigating their land have dammed up the water. And then you have next to it, adjacent to that, a community of about 3,000 people who have no access to water, who have to like dig a dam and share that water with animals, right? Like, come on. There there has to be a way in which to consider everybody. The resource, the resource is scarce, not just for some people. The resource is scarce for all people. And we have to consider that we have to find a way in which Everybody can participate. And that way requires more than just one thing. So when I say to you that Mm. the ways that these old commercial farmers are outdated, not just in South Africa, outdated all over the world, all over the world. And, and they, that hasn't 
come. Why? Because they have their historical license, which allowed them to bypass this community and leave that community with no access. And at some point, we have to consider that we have to consider a way that that re-establishes a norm and allows everybody access. So, so let's talk because none of us are in government and none of us have water licenses, as far as I can tell. But um, possibly none of our listeners even have water licenses. So from the, the, the point of view of, of, of what might be the ideal situation, I have to, again, illustrate with, with some sense of pragmatism that government may not be the best means of allocating these, these rights and that government – and I'm not saying that the private sector is necessarily the only other option, but we know that our government is hopelessly inefficient in every single way. So how could we imagine that they would be efficient in dealing with this issue? Um, and it, and rem- remember, a law is only as good as the paper it's written on and is only as good as the enforcement of that law might be. I don't think that a government that is unable to keep the roads from falling apart, that a government that's unable to keep the lights on, will in any way be able to police water licenses. They have no idea of how many liters of water are going this way, that way, or the other. They have no idea of where boreholes are being sunk. They have no idea of where pipes burst or they don't. They don't know any of this stuff. So how the hell are they going to enforce any of this anyway? It's pure theory. Or am I being, again, utopian? (laughs) Well, I'd like to hear... More than that, what then you propose is a potential solution. Yeah, given I mean, that, I, I would, given that okay. you read this one article that has raised your ire right. about this thing. So, personally, um, I don't think um, the government should be issuing out licenses for water. Right, but um, they I do just think all over the world. No, no, no. Exactly. Even if they do, so, it doesn't mean that they should. What, so, what's, it doesn't what's mean that your, they should. So what I'm saying is that we shouldn't have this, right? What should rather happen is that the people who own the property or who own the, the land or the, the streams or whatever, they should have the, they should determine what happens to their water. Now, the thing about water is that there are many ways in which you can obtain it. I don't think you can only get it from streams and so forth. There's also rain. There's also desalination. All these other technologies that are available that can make water uh, easily available. And I think if the government can just like step out and allow people who are closer to the problem to figure out solutions, then I think you'll see these innovations come up. But the problem now is that when you issue out licenses, you build the cartels, you keep the innovative people out, and you only keep people that you want in. And then as a result, you get that situation that you mentioned now where you have these farmers with all these uh, – you said with all these irrigation structures where the community next to it has no water, but they got a lot of water. And it's the because Im- the licenses allow that. The impracticality of the, what you are exactly. saying, Dumo, the impracticality mm. of what you are saying, right, then means people like you and I and Gareth who live in cities, who don't mm. have access to boreholes, who don't, there's no opportunity because then all of us have to be reliant on some farmers who have yeah. the access to the water. Not, not, to, not, not to, necessarily. To share it with us, to share it not with us at, at particular cost. How would so, that happen? How would that happen? There, there are many ways to deliver the service, right? You don't have to have piped water. I mean, if, if you look at households now, they have Jojo tanks and they collect rainwater. 
people do their own water harvesting as well. So I don't see how it'll be so difficult for someone um, to harvest their own water or at the same time, even get water delivered to them, put it in a tank, and then they can use it, and it can get um, refilled every week. There are so many ways of doing that. Like, even where I live, the one time the municipality, um, they, they failed in their water service delivery, and then guess what happened? They called the private water tanker guy to come through. He came through, filled up the tanks, and we had water for the day. There are many ways to deliver the service, but the problem is that the government's involvement in this is killing the innovation. Trust me, I want everyone to get water. And I think the best way to do it is that you allow people that are closer to the problem to solve it. And I think a market-based solution is the best way of doing it. I, I, also, I also think I think we've learned from this cholera outbreak in uh, Hamanskral and, and uh, Sashanguve that clearly when government is in charge of water, it can go horribly, horribly wrong. I think that there's something really twisted and perverse about things which are abundant in nature I'm surprised that the ANC hasn't even found a way yet to tax us for the air that we breathe. They will no doubt try and do that at some point too. And it's all pure, um, it's pure, it's pure grabbing of resources for, for, the, for the state to monopolize control. I don't think a lot of this is actually coming from a good place anyway. I don't think that they sit there and go, okay, we really need to decide how we can make sure that all South Africans have clean fresh water and that they have an availability of an abundance of water i don't think there's any of that happening they look at it and they go right just like with you know, minerals, no, just like I, mineral rights, let's find a way that we can monopolize control of all you of this. know what it it's a little bit of the asset no you know what it's also a little bit about it's also a little bit about navel gazing right we're all dissatisfied with the particular government that we have in place and so every single thing that comes at us we can only see through the very small hole of we hate this government and they just they're incompetent and they don't do anything right but what we fail to do is we we then even in this conversation that we're having we're failing to look at a wider lens that says, what are the practices around the world? I mean, there are countries that are in the desert like Israel for crying out loud. And they have managed to create a their government in conjunction with their universities have managed to create an environment which works, that allows A, the, the access for everybody and B, an an innovative way of moving forward regarding this. And what we're not doing, what we're not, we're not looking at all of those things and saying, right, how, how does that work over there? And how is the, what we have available yeah. to us and what is being proposed? How are those things okay. equitable? So, how so. are those things compatible? And what does that actually mean going forward? Because we are so, we're so angry and dissatisfied about this one particular group of people, which we should be able to change if we're that dissatisfied. Well, I do think it's it's a question of what comes first, the chicken or the egg here. And I don't disagree with you, Pumi, that we, we do get very myopic about, you know, zoning in on how useless our government are. But the very next topic of conversation, and one that we covered, as I mentioned with Jonathan Witt not so long ago, is the NHI, another example of where if we only had a few people of merit and of moderate competence in control of this country, 
we wouldn't be having these discussions because they would be simple, pra- practical application of people who actually, who understand, who have a knowledge of the subject matter, who would be able to sit there and go, all right, this is the best way to administer this thing, whether it's medical insurance, public health, water, electricity, <laughs> the budgets, all of this stuff. We just need competent people. So it's not only a question of us looking through that little hole that you spoke about, but it's a question of who's looking back at us. And it's a bunch of complete ignoramuses. You know, you, you know the, the proposed NHI, as we're looking at it here, is a, a replica of what they have in the UK, right? And speaking of uh, a, a, apparently a bunch of competent people, uh, the entire idea of how it works, and and in fact, the company, the consulting company that was responsible for implementing it in yep. the UK, then da da da, take a wild guess. My favorite consultants in the world, McKinsey. Yeah. So. Th- all of you know all of those things i i just and it's it's a it's about motivations of the various uh components of people that are involved in these things the, you spoke the, with when I, you were speaking with jonathan about it you you know you you spoke extensively about um the involvement of discovery mm-hmm. in this matter but what mm-hmm. you didn't speak about is oh surprise surprise who is one of Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC's biggest funders. Who? Discovery. Okay. All right. Well, that tells you a lot. So, okay. You see, because they obviously <laughs> but think... But Duba wanted to say something. Duba wanted to say something about the NHI. Yeah. I, I think what you guys are mentioning is exactly um, what I would um, expect, really. Because the 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 problem with the, the NHI, it's not only the cronyism that will come as that'll come up as a result it's just that it will never achieve the objective that that the government says it will like they say they want to provide equitable health care and and you know free health care that's um decent and everything like that that is not going to happen you see whenever no. the means of production are centralized you can never make these de- you can never make a- economic calculations which means you can never make profits or loss calculations and as a result of that you're going to get massive uh, resource misallocations. So if you look at the, the the British NHS, for example, they have they always have a crisis where there's not enough beds, or there are people that are sick that that need to that, that are waiting in the the hallways and are dying there. And even in South Africa, we have that as well because of the fact that there's no profits and loss calculations. And as a result of that, you cannot find the most optimal way of combining resources so that you can provide something that's affordable and effective. Because now everything is being centralized. And also at the same time, I mean, you as a patient, you know, in the NH, in the NHI, it's going to be a bad thing because you may need a particular set of treatments and the government can just say, well, um, you're not getting it. And we've seen what happened in, in the, in the NHS. One, another example was when there was this kid, I forgot his name, but he needed, um, a machine to help him breathe. And yep. he was disallowed by his own government to go to another country to get treatment. So basically, they own you. And as a libertarian, that violates the self-ownership principle. We own our own bodies. Therefore, we should be able to choose which treatments we want. And the government you know shouldn't be the one that determines it. Duma, I also think 
you, you hinted at something there which could be a practical way to attack this monster, whether it's water or NHI or anything else, is that we need to decentralize these things. Central planning is a bad idea, full stop. If we didn't learn that from the Soviet Union, we'll never learn it. And it's obvious to me that the, the ANC in particular are obsessed with outdated and, and, and demonstrably stupid ideas, um, like central planning. Everything like this needs to be devolved to the local level. You need hospitals being able to decide for themselves. They've got managers. They've got administrators. There, there are ways to do this that, that don't need to involve a minister and cabinet and parliament. It doesn't make any sense when it comes to people's individual private or public health care that they need to be referring this to the national government the whole time. The national government can certainly provide money for those things, but the administration of those things has nothing to do with a minister of health. It doesn't make any sense to me that that person should be the one to decide whether Pumi gets ticked off for this operation, whether you're allowed to access that kind of private health care, whether I'm allowed to put money into a fund with a bunch of other people because we want to fund our own, you know, hospital plan going forward. I don't see how that's got anything to do with whoever the minister of health is at any given time. Agreed. And just another thing, never forget about the NHI for a second. Our current legislation with regards to healthcare, it's atrocious. That also kills innovation, especially with regards to medical aids, like, um, Minimum prescribed benefits, for example, mm. um, where, where you are, where you have to, where you are forced to fund, um, you know, uh, fund uh, the treatments of diseases that you will may not get or that you may not even need. Like, for example, like type two diabetes, for example, which is lifestyle related. I think that, um, for example, if you look at what I suggest is that when you look at the minimum prescribed benefits and the current um, legislation. Um, that needs to change, especially even when you build hospitals now. They say you need to get approval from the Minister of Health. I mean, what does he know? What, what does he know about you having a hospital there? I mean, if you build a hospital and it fails, you can always sell the building and they can, you know, repurpose it for something else. But now the Minister of Health has to check that because they don't want, quote-unquote, over-servicing. That's ridiculous. The person who's building it is going to pay the price if he made the wrong choice. But now if the government does it and no one uses it, you know, now the taxpayers pay, and then you just got a standing building there that no one's going into. Like in China, they've got cities. Because, again, resource misallocations, because you cannot make profits and loss calculations if you centralize the means of production. It's that simple. So, again decentralize it. We need mass decentralization in the healthcare sector. And again, what you'll find, you'll find better healthcare innovations, you'll find cheaper healthcare, and you'll find more effective healthcare as well. And we'll live for longer. We might even live for like 150. And then now, then we have another problem, which is that, will our pensions last for that long? And then we have to decentralize that and see what happens. But the problems that I want to have is the problems of abundance, you know, when we have too <laughs> Will much our of something, last that long. Would exactly. You, do you recognize the fact that we we currently have an almost fifty percent unemployment rate and seventy four percent of young people aren't in any form of employment? Where's yeah. their pension going to come from? They're not working. Where's their pension going to come from? But no, no, I think no. one of the things that South Africa well, is I'll in. Tell you what, uh, I'll tell you what you don't do for me. I'll tell you what you don't do is you don't go and take from the people who've been saving 
their whole life long. Domestic workers who've been putting money into a pension fund, people who've been working for businesses, people who've been putting away their own savings. You don't go and rape those people's savings in order to pay for people who don't have any. That's something that seems completely unfair to me. You know, and one, and, okay. here and just in one South thing. Africa are in a perfect storm where we have our government and labor and business all being on the same side. And the people who are at a loss, are, are all of us, all the people who are not in those positions, right? So we have on the one side, we have, you know, our minister of health at a press conference standing next to uh, one of the heads of the, I think at the time it was life, <laughs> right? A, a hospital group and mm-hmm. all of them. And, you know, and as we know, because of, of their uh, uh, tripartite alliance, uh, the labor movements are all on the side of whatever it is that the government says. So we're, we're um, I know people don't like it when I swear, but, it, it, you know, to put it mildly, mildly the people, we're all hoist on our own petard with regard mm-hmm. to this particular thing because they are in cahoots. You know, when we speak about McKinsey, right. when we speak about Discovery, when we speak about the government, all of these individuals and shareholders to a large extent have all of them have a common goal and their common goal is to make as much money as they can for themselves. Well, that's what Stink Mina says. Private sector only cares about profit, Dumo. So what do you say to that? (laughs) Yeah, of course they do. But it's not like as if the profit is um, in abundance. In order for them to get that profit, they need to provide a service at a, um, a, a at a price that people are willing to pay. So they have to negotiate a price. And if the price is too expensive, people will find other means of actually getting that service so good. So even if they do care about profit, it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day as long as um, they are competing. Because what's going to happen is, let's say, for example, they charge too high of a price and you have a competitive market where people can come in. The next person that comes in is going to charge a lower price. And then that person who's charging a higher price is going to lose customers as a result of that. So at the end of so, so the, I think what people think is that um, pe- that when people chase profits, they're just going to ramp up the price as high as possible. But if that was the case, we would have been seeing that already right now. No, that's not the case. The reality is that the people that are selling these goods and services, they know for a fact that um, other people can take customers away from them, and they know that their customers have limited resources as well. So they have to price accordingly. Dumo, and that's a very simple way of looking. That's no, a very simple way of looking okay. at something that's really complex, including what they call input costs. You know, so it's it's never exactly. only just the market that determines what things are. People get comp- people get priced out of markets all the time, and exactly many, many that's competition. Out of markets, <laughs> no, that's competition. No, that's competition. But if you can't afford, but that's competition. That's how it works, right? So mm-hmm. you're gonna have input costs. But no, listen, hold on, just one, just one point. You're gonna have your input costs, but when they become too expensive, what happens is that the competitors will know. The, the prices for specific input costs. And then if you allow them to compete, they can find cheaper ways of providing the service <laughs> so that they can, so that they can actually provide a cheaper, 
what is it? A cheaper product at the end of the day. That's what happens because remember, if you're competing, if you're selling something, if you're selling Fed Cook for 10 Rand and I'm selling it for 5 Rand, who are people going to buy from? They're going to buy from me because I'm selling it Except for cheaper. Except for the fact that exactly. the food cost is 5 but, Rand, nobody is no, but if I No, but if I, but if I can find a way to produce Fed Cook cheaper than you so that I can sell it at a cheaper price, then I am winning. And that's what we do. That's what companies do. That is what um, competitors do. They look at the input cost. That's why and there then are they minimum do prices to everything. No, 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 no. There are minimum prices. But again, if you allow people to compete, they the, the prices will go down because they're going to find cheaper ways of providing that service. That's what happens. <laughs> where you have, where you have, Gareth, you go. No, no, Pums. We've finished this. I, just, I, I think we have to move on. No, I do think we have to move on simply because, Dumo, what you have simplified in your mind and what makes sounds like in your mind it makes sense doesn't make sense in the real world. It and does make sense world, in the real world. The real There's world a lot of evidence for that. Well. Look at the airlines industry. The airlines industry is a perfect example of that. When they deregulated, you got your low-cost low airlines and people could fly for cheaper. That's what happened. There's a real life evidence for that. So you don't, so, so you, you can't tell so me that right it's now, in my mind. There's a lot it, of evidence right, for that. So let's, let's talk about that, right? When they are also what you have, particularly in the airline business, as we have been watching here in South Africa with the collapse of SAA, is that actually when you don't have a regulator of price in terms of, and like we, what we had, and we were just talking about the fact that I had to travel a 14 hour journey, which would take 14 hours. 33 hours, essentially, because we don't have our own carrier that would allow us to, A, be able to regulate regulate what that price is, but also create an environment of competition that is slightly different to what we have right now. So right now, to get anywhere, you have to travel to another country first before you can get anywhere. But, uh, but Pums, okay. I think... Wrong. I disagree, but that's but fine. I think, that's fine. It's okay. I think you're... I I think you're you're, you're saying we need a regulator. I think we need more competition, which, which yeah. again, feeds into what Dumo is saying. In any case, the fact is we've all been, whether you are dependent on the public health system, which is a dangerous place to find yourself in South Africa, or if you are the sort of person who's been able to afford medical aid, which is exorbitantly expensive in South Africa, either way, you're screwed, right? Neither is great. Am I correct? Back anyway, to what I was saying, I we have uh, where business and labor and government are in cahoots. The end game is that the loser is you. Okay, so let's let's look at something else because I don't want us to get frustrated on this subject, and it can get very are frustrating. We, we've sort of covered. We did water in a previous episode. We've done NHI in a previous episode, and we've done the next subject in a previous episode. But I do want to hear Dumo's take on it. So, what do you have to say about Russia and? Ukraine. And I mean, I see that Naledi Pandor has things to say about this. As Russian always. Mutiny, African efforts to end the Ukraine war. Who's listening to Naledi Pandor in the Ukraine or Russia, for God's sake? And who was listening to Cyril the other day in Poland when he arrived there with a plane full of soldiers with guns? What are these idiots doing? Have they not picked up the basic diplomacy guidebook? Why are they embarrassing us on the national stage and throwing away what little credibility we still have. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. Just a quick view on uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, obviously I want that war to end as soon as possible. 
Um, yes. Obviously, um, you know, I'm not going to condone Putin's actions, um, but I understand why he did what he did. But that's not to say that what he did was correct. Um, but again, NATO is a big uh, player here. And I think that um, NATO, in my opinion, given the fact that the Soviet Union, um, sorry, guys, my camera battery ran out. So I'll, I'll, I'll just connect <laughs> the right, charger now. But, cool. yeah, but, but just given that, I think that, um, you know, j- just given all of that, I think we can find a peaceful negotiation to this. And what I don't want is that this war actually escalates to a nuclear war because that would just be crazy. Because um, if Russia feels like they have no other choice, I think they, they might go nuclear. And I don't want that to happen. But again, now, if you look at South Africa's involvement in this, I think South Africa, we try to be neutral. We try to say, hey, it's none of our business and everything. And then, you know, we found there was that allegations of weapons being transported to Russia and so forth. And it, that doesn't look good. And yeah, and also the whole situation that happened in Poland as well. In my opinion, I just feel that, uh, I don't know, it, it was just like, you know, theater politics in the, at the end of the day. Um, perhaps, um, Poland was just trying to be difficult towards South Africa. Um, given their stance on the war, they haven't really taken a stance. So they're probably trying to pressure them. I don't know if, I think they probably aren't part of NATO. Who knows? But again, even Ramaphosa as well. I don't think many people are listening to him as well. Um, because again, he's not the one who calls the shots. At the end of the day, the person who calls the shots right now is Joe Biden because the USA is the head of NATO. NATO no, and it's, it's not Joe well, Biden. It's, who, it's whoever's handling Joe Biden. Oh. It's whoever's, <laughs> yes, yes. whoever's shepherding him around the, 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 the White House and the Oval Office. It's whoever's pushing him around in a wheelchair or helping him to decide which direction to turn his head in. Um, it's not right. Joe Biden. Um, Pums, do you have any so updates? Well, Dumas busy figuring out his camera. Do you have any updates <laughs> on, on your opinion on this? You know, on, uh, uh, at the moment, what we all we can do is is scenario plan or or strategy speculations, right? Because this is a an ever uh, rapidly developing experience. I think if if anything, when we woke up to see uh, Prigozhin marching on Moscow, yeah. that was a something we all hadn't seen coming. Nobody had seen that coming. That conversation hadn't, even as we watched him shouting uh, mm-hmm. at G- um in, was it February or March? On all those videos that were leaked, w- nobody could have imagined that this is the way things would turn out. And and my view, and I, I have a theory on this, is now that Rogozhin is out in Belarus, Yes. I I think it's a ruse. I think it's a ruse very similar to to this last front that they were fighting where again Prokhorchen being the key player where they they seemed to be withdrawing, right? And they drew the 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 Ukrainian troops in and what they did was they splintered. As they were withdrawing they splintered and what you, what you saw is the Ukrainian forces being forced to also disintegrate and then have to fight on multiple fronts. And then they were able to come back and count and have a counteroffensive. And that's how they were able to take, take uh, over the, that particular, um, I don't know what's it called. All these Russian names that we have to, to remember, it just completely freaked me out. But now when you see him march on Moscow, 
And then a couple, and it, I mean, it's an 11 hour march that he was embarking on. It was clear from the jump that they're not going to make it all the way to Moscow. But what it looked like is it looked like a big disagreement within the ranks in the Russian army. Clearly. But the fact that he has been allowed to go and with Lukashenko being the person who brokered this peace and now moving this individual and some of his armed forces to Belarus, which is in a different flank that hasn't mm. been, where Russia hasn't been, right? In a friendly state because Belarus is friendly to Russia on another flank of the Ukraine and closer to Kiev. I yeah. think it's a ruse, and I think we're going to see another opening of of a different fighting front, which the Ukrainian forces cannot afford because the Ukrainian forces are not in Kiev. They've gone out, you know. So I, I think we're watching a, a still developing situation. And for America, all they have to do is they just have to keep Russia, Russia engaged and bleed them, essentially. They're going to bleed them of money. They're just going to keep them engaged. And this morning we wake up and hear that Poland has agreed to allow the Ukraine to launch missiles, ground missile strikes from Poland. So it's still, the theater is still engaged, friends. The theater is still engaged. And I think we're still going to see many turns in this environment. But with regard to South Africa's peace mission, I think it was posturing that they don't need to have. They really don't need it. I think that if if Cyril Ramaphosa wants to rebuild his credibility as any kind of intermediary or peace negotiator, he's got the perfect place to start in Sudan. He's got the perfect place to start in Sudan. You know, where, where, where he actually can make a difference. And that would give him a little bit more credibility in the world as well. I mean, that was Tabombeki's strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Is that's where he started. Right. He honed his teeth on the continent. And then they invited them into Ireland. You know what I'm saying? That, that I don't know if the guys look at all the scenarios or if they're just kind of lurching from yeah. thing to thing. Let me bring things home a little bit. Uh, Paul Mashatile has been in the news. Apparently News 24 have got this issue. They, they call it uh, Mashatile Unmasked, which they've just put together. Deputy President Paul Mashatile leads a life of luxury and seeming excess using multi-million rand homes owned by tenderpreneurs and beneficiaries of government contracts on Cape Town's exclusive Atlantic seaboard to entertain a string of lovers and friends. Mashatile is open about his ambition to supplant Cyril Ramaphosa at the next election has also perfected the art of attaining what appears to be beneficial ownership without having it registered in his name, nor does he pay directly for it or explain the source of his benefaction. Regular companions and sources with direct access to Mashatile and his lifestyle say he almost never pays for anything directly out of his own pocket. Um, we're going to try and get a Paul Mashatile supporter on the show to try and explain this away. But do I either thought of you, you have got an email. email? Did you get an email? I, I from got a an email from somebody. Yeah. And they said that they want to come in and defend him. They said, we need Paul Mashatile. Without him, things get even worse. Do you have anything to say? Is anything about this surprising, first of all, to you, Dumo or Pumi? And, and second of all, what do you, what do you think is, uh, is going on here? Do you think it's worthy of, of more inspection? 
Well, I, I, I'm not surprised. I think that if you are a high-ranking government official, you'll have access to a lot of people. Um, because again, you, you know, you're part of a, of an agency that has a monopoly on ultimate decision making. So you are going to, so people are going to want favors from you. So Paul Mashatile being the, the vice president, I think that, um, a lot of people would like to be on his good side. Cause hey, who knows? I mean, they might, uh, he might, uh, you know, help institute a law that might help your business and stuff like that, which goes back to the cronyism that we we're talking about earlier. So this is not surprising. I think this is, um, what I would expect given, um, you, you know, given that we have a state and that there are people that want to get favors from them. And I don't know. I mean, if, if you're going to get this guy who's going to defend him, I'd like to see how, what he's going to say. Um, I think he's probably going to rely more on the fact that from a policy point of view or from a party point of view, he might be the right guy. But I won't be surprised to see if there are any other high-ranking government officials that are also in the same mess that he's involved in right now. Or when I say mess, I put that in quote-unquote mess. Or, yeah, that's, how, that's what I would say. I'm not surprised at all. I live in Gauteng, remember? So I was here when Paul Mashatile was the premier. I was here and none of these things that News24 is um, reporting on is new. This is Paul Mashatile's lifestyle. This is how he was when he was the premier. This is this is how he lives his life. It doesn't surprise me at all. But I think this this then gives me... Almost all of the things that we've spoken about today gives me my in for my weekly harping on about why it is important now more than ever for anybody and everybody that has a view about what we need to do in terms of bringing down uh, the, the ANC and changing the government this is it. This is why it's important that you not only go out and vote, but you get as many young people registered and informed about how to vote and what they should be considering when they are voting, because next year's election is that important, right? So all of these things, all of these bills, all of these proposals have to go through a parliamentary process as well. And for as long as we have a majority number of seats in our parliament that are in the hands of this one particular party, we're again going to be completely hoist on our own petard. This is why it is important. And a lot of people kind of think, you were talking about why more competition is important. A lot of people think in a very reductionist way when it comes to thinking about politics and voting and who to vote for. This is also an environment that, you know, quite perversely requires more players in order to be able to whittle down the the super block that is able to to ram things through Parliament. So this well, is it, guys. Well, let's not uh, let's not move on in a hurry because the wife of former National Lotteries Commission Chief Operating <laughs> Officer Philemon Ledwaba has claimed that under oath her company loaned three million rand to Fikilim Balula to help him buy a luxury home in the upmarket suburb of Bryanston in Johannesburg. Ledwaba resigned under a cloud while on suspension pending a disciplinary hearing where he would have faced the charges of money laundering and abusing his position to enrich himself and his family. So this is the lottery money. This is the money that poor South Africans, it's not rich people are buying lottery tickets, poor South Africans are putting in in the desperate hope of getting something back, of winning something, or 
of that money, if they are completely uh, altruistic, which I don't believe exists, but if there are people like that, they're giving it to the Lottery Commission so that they can give it to desiring and deserving charities, of which there are millions in South Africa. But what are they doing with this lottery money? They're lending it to Fikile Mbalula to buy a house in Bryanston. Three million rand of it. <laughs> Do me a favor. <laughs> ah, the SAU is taking scalps, kicking ass and taking names. Because the part of the reason why we know this is because of SIU investigations. But all that doesn't matter if our wonderful uh Shamila Patoi and her team don't get moving. None of what, this matters. What the hell are we paying for, for at, at that NPA at the moment? I do not understand. Okay, guys, I don't expect you to say anything else about that because it's just something we need to know about. Um, I see lots of people. Max Sony keeps saying that Garrett's idea of a tax re- revolt is the only solution. Uh, Dumo, do you have any thoughts on a tax revolt? It's come up. It even came up with Justice Malala when he was here for his book launch a couple of days ago. Right. Yeah. The thing, the thing about a tax revolt, I mean, I can understand the objectives that it's trying to achieve. I don't mm. know if it will be so prudent because remember the state is, I mean, as much as, um, as I'm a libertarian and, um, I am not a big fan of the state getting involved uh, in people's lives and being invasive. The state has a lot of power. Um, and I think that if one wants to attempt a tax revolt, um, be prepared for the state to um, come after you because you are literally going after um, their main source, you know, of income. So maybe, um, uh, maybe if you want to say tax revolt in the sense that you know I'll use cash only, well, that then that's probably tax avoidance, you know. But yeah, tax avoidance that sounds great. But the moment you go, let's say. In, in like when you say I'm not going to pay tax, or you go for in the tax evasion direction, I don't think that would be that would work out well for you. So I think for me, um, best thing is fine, use cash as much as possible, try to pay as little tax as possible legally. But I just think the the whole battle is ex- is actually to get people on board um, on trying to decentralize, and that is more of a conversation with regards to trying to convince people. So yeah, that's my thing. But tax revolt, it might work, may not work, but the state is way too powerful, in my opinion. Uh, one last thing before we wrap it up this morning: Transport Minister Sindisiwe Chikunga another minister we've only just heard about now, says the rollout of new driver's license cards in South Africa will help the department tackle two big problems, corruption and the stubborn backlog of applications. And what yet, were those sounds you were making this morning that, that helped wake you up? The, the, I, I have a, a cackling sound that I'd like to share right about now with regard to that little titbit. Go on. Really? <laughs> Combat what? Corruption? Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. In the Department of Transport. Anyway, so, uh, this, you know, what, what we, what, what I hope around, around South Africa without licenses anyway and just don't give a shit. Have you seen the Uber East drivers? Uh, the one thing that I was hoping we would talk about, especially in the news headlines, is there's a video that's making rounds about a shooting in Bramfontein. An SAPS officer and a JMPD officer were in an altercation, drunken altercation in the middle of the night outside a club in Bramfontein. Uh, in the video that you see, you see the, the one kind of shouting and 
toting his gun and all of that stuff. And I understand that that is the JMPD officer. Um, and the one that's in the car is the SAPS officer. And he eventually shoots uh, the one outside the car. And it's all on gruesome video. But when I saw that video yesterday or whenever it came through or the day before, when I saw that video, I thought to myself, this, this video is such a clear demonstration of in, in a very small microcosm of the problems that we face when it comes to our law enforcement environment in South Africa. We have many undisciplined officers. Mm-hmm. And then we have many factions of uh, police um, enforcement, as it were. And they are in competition with each other. But because they all exist in, in all of these little silos that they exist in, we're all just generally fucked by the fact that each and every one of them see themselves separately and superior yep. to the others. Yep. And so we're always caught as, as the general public. We're, we're then caught in this, in the tailspin of it all, right? Where they don't work together and they don't work well with each other. And, and then there are guns involved. So people also die, you know, in more ways than one. When I saw that video, that's one of the things that, that really in, in my mind was like, blown by the fact that nobody sees this and nobody is thinking about how we solve this. But of course, nobody's thinking about how we solve this because we've got Begitzele sleeping at the wheel. Anything to add to that, Duma? Yeah, that's actually a, a sad story. Uh, first time hearing that, uh, Pumi. Um, I, I, yeah, I just think for me, um, yeah, this is this is a situation where I think government is doing too much. So now you've got JMPD here, you've got SAPS there, you know, there's so many, there's just, you don't know who's who really. So I just think in my opinion, they probably just need to simplify the system. And that's not through centralization. I think perhaps they just need to give more freedoms to the, to, to, to the, to the, to the, to the provinces rather. And then maybe the SAPS can take a back foot. But I just think in my opinion, if you're having situations where, Two government institutions are fighting against each other who are supposed to protect the public, then I think there's a serious problem going on. Well, our, our friend Lekon uh, Doba says, I am team SAPS. That man could shoot six shots clean to the chest. So Leto <laughs> is uh, jumping in on the side of the SAPS. All right, ladies and gents, I'm afraid that is all the time we have for this week's Burning Platform. Duma, it's always good to see you. Thank you very much for your time. We'll catch up with you soon. Dumodenga can be found uh, through his social media handles, which I will put up on screen now. And you can also find his own podcast, which is terrific, the Man Patriot podcast. You can also check him out on all the socials and on the YouTubes and everything else too. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. Cheers, Dumo. And Pums, you have a lovely week. Uh, what's left of it and weekend. I can't believe it's really Thursday morning. It feels like this week has just blown by. And keep warm. Keep warm. Oh. Any, any exciting plans to keep warm for the weekend? What do you do, Pums? What do you do? Oh, stay home and make a fire. That's what I'm going to do. But you know what exciting thing I am doing this afternoon? Going to a policy discussion about the changes to the IEC Act. Oh, <laughs> and I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll important. tell you all about that next week.
All right, maybe talk to one of those IEC people so we can get them on the show as well. Because mm. I think I that's very important. No point in us talking about voting and getting people to register if the electoral process itself comes into question, right? Yeah, and there's, as you know, there there are many, many changes afoot there. It's part of the reason why uh, it still hasn't been announced when we're going to be voting, when exactly voting is going to happen. But I'm expecting a lively and interesting discussion. I'll tell you all about it next week. Thanks, Pumi. Very good. If it doesn't okay. keep me warm, I know it's going to get me hot under the collar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. Cliffcentral.com.